Did um, either of you listen to the Coca-Cola Amatil um, investor presentation in the last week? I can't say that I did. <laughs> it's on my list of things. It's next to yeah, the um, thesaurus beside my bed that I'm, I'm hoping to, you know, read a chapter of each night and just never get round to it. Thanks to Cryer Malt, a local malt for local beer. This is Radio Brews News. I'm your host, Pete Mitchum, and joining me on this episode are the founding and current editors of Australian Brews News, Matt Kierkegaard and James Atkinson. G'day, Matt. G'day, Pete. How are you? I'm very well, thank you for asking. James, good to have you back, mate. Thanks, mate. Good to be back. How are you doing? Yeah, good, mate. Got a better offer last week, did you? Or did you just forget? Um, no, I haven't sold out to anyone. Um, no, I'm still, still on the market uh, looking for another buyer. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Good to have everyone join us. Uh, we've got, as I say, the three of us together, and we might just before we get into the news that made news this week in news on Radio Brews News and on Australian Brews News, we might just quickly remind viewers and listeners that we still have a couple of tickets left. We had a really great response, Matt, to uh, our uh, come and have a drink on us with um, the Radio Brews News crew at uh, the Malt Trouble Brewery next monday we did prof yeah no it's uh, really exciting it, it the most interesting thing and and something that i might get everybody to uh, uh our, our very active emailing listenership it, it's always interesting to see when the podcast drops uh generally on a friday there's a couple of hundred uh downloads you know easily by the saturday morning but we didn't start getting the emails until uh monday or tuesday um so whilst people downloaded over the weekends i'd always assume that listeners you know mow the lawn or do their weekend chores listening to the podcast but it seems to be something that they listen to on, on their work week maybe on their, their work commute so listeners just drop us a quick note and let us know when you listen to the podcast because uh, that helps us to guide when we put it out and uh, those sorts of things but yeah no Sydney um, great response in terms of uh, tickets I think we've got a handful left so by the time this goes out there'll probably be none um, but yeah no really looking forward to catching up and having some drinks next Monday night and catching up with you guys uh, IRL as the kids say prof. Very much looking forward to it. It'll be a lot of fun. Christmas drinks as well as uh, obviously getting to, I, I guess, Christen, the, the new bar. Um, I don't know whether it's – it hasn't been open to the public yet. Presumably it's it's been commissioned. They're not going to actually, like, you know, test the system out on us. But um, it not actually officially open to the public as a, as a relaunch. Is that right? I believe so. It's a shiny new bar. I'm not sure. James, I think you know a little bit more whether it's going to be something that they run as a, you know, consumer-facing uh, brewery. No, I don't think that it is. I think it's just that they've, you know, set it up so that they can have um, special events there, whether it's, you know, Sydney Beer Week or whether it's something something like this for us. Nothing more special um, special than us. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but definitely they're not turning it into, you know, a, a tap room or a cellar door as such. It's just I don't think that's ever been the intention. In this week's milestone 150th episode, we take a cheeky glance at the news that has broken in the beer world, and in particular, Pirate Life's ship gets boarded by privateers, and online forums are filled with words that will burn your buccaneers, uh, and we'll also uh, look at that. Did you like that? We'll just insert laugh track Sorry, <laughs> Sorry uh, Prof, that was very good. Beer festivals, good or gouge, Phil Cook takes a look at an online book that makes beer look crook and the writer a chook. And we take a quick look at the IBD conference. Boys, 
at the time that uh, this episode dropped, we had actually whipped out a very quick beer conversation, 10-minute chat with um, Michael Cameron from Pirate Life. But we haven't actually, as a trio or even as a duo or any combination thereof, had a chance to chat about the news that broke just before last week's episode, Pirate Life, boarded by privateers. Was there any surprise? Mate, there actually was. Um, you know, not, not surprised that there was another takeover. We knew when... Uh Ferrell was taken over that CUB was still sniffing around to for an acquisition then. I was a little bit surprised at Pirate Life because, you know, they've been on such a rapid trajectory. I thought, you know, there was still plenty of, uh, you know, upward motion before they would need to consider selling. And, you know, the, the greater their market share, the, the, the bigger their price. But I suspect that the way that we understand that ABI structures their deal, that it, they can still generate um, a higher sale price post-contract uh, dealings if, if, if they do hit certain sales targets. Um, so that would have been an attraction. I guess also if there was another big brewery sale before the end of the year, that starts to take a little bit of steam out of the market because there are only so many purchases for breweries in that range. Um, but yeah, no, I was very, very surprised uh, that they sold... Um, when they did, and it, it really, whereas Feral had started to have a little bit of whispers in, in the lead up to it, this just came as a bolt out of the blue. Yeah, James, there's certainly been lots of, um, as I intimated, lots of online chatter, and it seems to be fairly uh, evenly divided down the centre in terms of um, good on them, well done, you know, um, good, fair reward for, for a lot of hard work, whereas the others, it's kind of, yeah, well done, you know, sell out, um, you know. And, and have a crack yeah there's definitely a split between those people saying that you know they've drunk their last pirate life beer and um others who say that you know as long as the beer stays good they'll keep drinking it um and i think that you know over the next few years it's just going to be interesting to see how these takeovers play out and how successful they all are and how important it is to people this matter of independence in their purchasing decisions what does it say about the future? Because we've sort of, I guess, established a bit of a, uh, a beachhead uh, in, the, in the war, you know, the, the battle against mainstream beer. And now all of a sudden we, we've sort of lost uh, quite a few of our, uh, our units or our brigades uh, to the opposition. Does it weaken the position of craft beer, inverted commas, overall? Or does it just mean that independent beer, I guess, needs to be um, clever in the way they do things and that overall for that 95% of people who don't drink craft beer, uh, they now have a much better chance of, of getting into something other than, you know, a thin, pissy mainstream lager. Well, as you know, and we're about to start talking about this, but I, but I chatted with Jamie Cook this week and he was just making the point that even um, though the three breweries that have sold out in the last few months are, you know, among the, the larger ones, um, that the three of them combined represent only about 7% of the entire craft beer category. So, so actually, the you know share of independent brewers of that craft beer category is bigger than it was a few years ago, even with those um, sellouts, just because of the rate that independent brewers have been growing their market share. And then, of course, you know we've got we've had fifty new breweries open, um, you know, each year. Uh, I'd say this year we'll we'll get close to another fifty new breweries opening, um, if not quite fifty. So, you know, there's a lot of other independent breweries coming up that can fill the shoes of these three that have sold. So I don't think that it, you know, it's the death knell for the independent sector, albeit, you know, those ambitious targets that the IBA set out in July 
I forget what was it, 20% of uh, market share for um, independent beer or something along those lines are now starting to look, you know, much loftier than they were then. I don't, I don't think that, you know, if they, they'd known these sales were on the cards, there's no way that they would have said that they were going to try and hit that target. Yeah, and look, if there was um, lots of reaction to the sale itself, there's certainly been a lot of reaction to, to Jamie Cook's feelings on the sale and, and the sale generally in terms of, um, you know, Four Pines and Feral and Pirate Life in fairly quick succession. Were you surprised at the... Uh, the feedback and the uh, the response to to Jamie's words. Well, I think um, some people were a little bit surprised at uh, how how hard Jamie um, Jamie went with his comments. It was, you know, I received a couple of text messages last night, as I often do after a publisher story, and it was uh, one one person in the industry said something like Jamie Cook with the new ball coming in, you know, from a long run <laughs> off, up off of the long run. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's um, given, he's given he's given a few people a bit of chin music. He's dug a couple in short. Yeah, but I mean, I think Jamie's probably someone you know who's got standing in the industry and enough enough runs on the board to use another cricket pun that uh, that he that he you know he's he's entitled to to say these things if he believes them. We've worked you know um, fairly closely with Jamie and we've had him on quite a, a couple of times and uh, he's always good for very considered and, and thoughtful sort of opinion. He doesn't just sort of you know he, he's not sledging from the cheap seats kind of thing. But it's a case sort of I guess of. Um, is it a response, do you think, to a lot of people who are saying, oh, Stone and Wood's next? I absolutely um, do. But the funny thing is that even since publishing that article last night, um, wading through the dross that, you know, all the comments that have been posted online, it just doesn't seem to matter what Stone and Wood say. There's always going to be some Muppets that are going to think that, that, that are still going to say, oh, they're going to be next to sell. And I think that it just illustrates the point that Jamie made in that article, which I don't think anyone would disagree with which is that when you get repeated sales like this, it does erode confidence, um, people's trust and confidence in, in all independent brewers that, you know, that there is no other path for them to take other than selling out, um, you know, once they, once they reach um, a certain scale. And, you know, some of the comments that I've seen after posting that article, one of them was from a retailer uh, who shall remain nameless but particularly for, renowned for spreading scuttlebutt on Facebook and, He's just said, Stone and Wood will be the next, if not already happening. My trade account is on stop supply for $64 overdue by 14 days. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I had, I had this as well. <laughs> Four Pines the same, was the same prior to announcing buyout. You have to ask the question, why did Cook come out with the latest article but not denounce any sale now or into the future? And to which my response was, well, because they came out about a fortnight ago and denounced it by reposting the article when they previously denounced it a, two a years ago. A couple of ago. months before, exactly. So I just don't, <laughs> you know, it's just like, no, it obviously, I mean, I, I thought Jamie's comments, if, reading that as a, as a neutral observer, I would have thought, geez, they're obviously not going to sell because the way that he speaks about the companies that have, um, I, I think he really nails his colours to the mast and says, you know, we're, we're staying independent. And it's just th their behaviour, um, as, as he says, really just is not indicative of a company that, that is looking at selling. Um, so it's just, it's just annoying kind of reading some of that stuff online that's obviously very ill-informed, but you can understand where it comes from. Oh, and, and particularly, I think one of my favourites is where you get that sort of, you know, they're clearly losing the argument, so they'll, they'll sign off by saying, and Pacific Ale is fucking overrated. <laughs> so yeah, no, look, I agree with James there, and uh, you know, I think in, in terms of the 
fingers pointed at stone and wood. Um, I think Morrissey summed it up uh, when he said, we hate it when our friends become successful. Everybody wants to see craft beer do well until craft beer does well, then suddenly they've sold out even when they haven't. Um, but to, to Jamie's point, look, on one hand, you would expect him to come out because it's in Stone and Wood's interest to make that point and reaffirm their independence. But I think he does make a very solid point when he says it does create distrust. When you see uh, brands like Pirate Life, Feral change hands and the beer stays as good um, or it still stays very good, the people start thinking, well, does it ultimately matter whether a brewery is independent or not? Because their beer does become more easily uh, obtainable. It diminishes the difference between big breweries and little breweries when they're still making good beer. And I think that's a very positive point. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think we still come back to the big breweries have been dragged kicking and screaming into the modern market. Um, if it was up to them, they would sell one beer um, and they would, because they make a great you know, they can put more marketing dollar and make more profit if they only have to make one beer. And then that's where independence does matter, um, ultimately. Um, it doesn't question the beer in any uh, case at all, but independence does matter. I think that's the point that Jamie was uh, making and I thought it was a good one. Yeah, no, no 100%. And, and it really does bring in that element of, which I think he really touched on well, it is a motion charge. It is, it's something that people do get really invested in. Um, and when it's when the perception is that that, that trust has, has been breached, then uh, that's when, you know, it's all starts in laughs, ends in tears. That's right, Prof. You know, and on one hand, you can't get upset that there is this emotion in craft beer because, let's face it, it's been the passion that craft beer has created that has seen it grow. Um, you know, it's the enthusiasm, the hype and the excitement, and that is driven by passion. And so when businesses do sell, You've got all those passions that they, people have invested and, and they are going to feel deflated or they are going to feel a little bit uh, let down. Um, but that doesn't change the quality of the bureau at all, but it does explain some of that backlash. To Jamie's point about um, drinkers needing to look a bit deeper behind the comp- who owns the companies and how they behave um, to sort of get an idea of whether or not they're going to sell out, I reckon that's, I've been thinking about it, I reckon that's, you know, that's pretty hard to do and... Obviously, Stone and Wood got B Corp certification last year, which is a you know an accreditation for businesses that meet certain standards around um, governance, workers, community environment, business um, impact, all these types of things, which is very difficult to do. And you know that certainly goes some of the way to showing that, as he talks about, they are a conscious business. However, do you know the only other brewery in Australia that has achieved B Corp certification? Four points. Yes. So, <laughs> so when when I saw Mate, that, you, I thought, you well, sound surprised. I've got my finger on that pulse. Yeah. So it does. <laughs> it, it when I saw that, I thought, well, they were doing some of that, um, you know, conscious uh, capitalism or whatever you want to call it, and and yet they still had an eye for the exit. So I think it's a bit hard for. It's harder than you know. The, it's harder than than you may think for people to be able to make these assessments. Yeah. Which one of you two guys is using an electric shaver, or is one of your partners, Black Mumba, going off in, in the top drawer? Oh, uh, it's it's the background <laughs> noise at Makerspace. All right, well, uh, now let's uh, moving from beer to beer festivals, and uh, this week the uh, there was some bit of Facebook foruming about um, beer festivals, good or gouge. Matt, you and I have been involved in quite a few, uh, 
And it's, it is fair to say that there are two very distinct, I guess, groups of, of operators. There are the ones who, who do it for the love of the beer. And obviously, we're all in this caper uh, to not lose money. Um, and, and if we're going to take our time and our effort and, and take on the risk, then there's also, you know, a fair enough expectation that, uh, that, that beer festival organisers will make a profit. But then there are the others who, I guess, look at it as a, just a way to make profit. The main gist of the of the argument, I guess, was that you know, is eight dollars effectively, you know, in tokens or whatever, eight dollars a schooner at a beer festival. I may as well go to the local craft beer bar. What do you think, Matt? This came up in my Facebook feed, and I haven't been able to find it again, so I may not be able to post a link. But you, you've summed it up pretty well. Um, you know, when you when it costs you eight dollars for a schooner at a beer festival, and then you've got the admission price on top. Is it worth just going to a pub instead? Um, and, and that's actually something I've been thinking for a while. When you look at these days, the constantly rotating tap takeovers, the you know number of pubs have got 15, 20, 30 or more taps. So you almost do have a beer festival at your local um, if you want to. I think we commented recently that you don't really see the same level of wine festivals or wine appreciation weeks or anything that, that there are in beer. And a lot of that comes from the fact, I believe, that you know beer was such a slow um, comer um, to, to do what we're seeing, the, the, the craft beer revival now, that you did have to have these little uh, explosions of craft beer in the form of a beer festival. I, I think to answer the question, we have seen beer festivals evolve and where it used to be just a whole um, stack of three by three meter tents with brewers setting up and giving small little samples of their beer to introduce people to the idea of craft beer. I think we have seen some of the bigger festivals, um, whether it's uh, Beer Insider in Brisbane or Gabs or the GABF, they're not just doing that model. You're seeing a lot of, they're almost uh, half music festivals or half food festivals. Um, There is always something more in at the festival rather than just people going in and trying 30 or 40 um, small beer samples. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and if festivals aren't doing that, sure, no one's going to pay the 15, 20 bucks to get in so they can pay the same price. So, look, I think the commenter is right, assuming that there's no other entertainment at the beer festival apart from tasting beers. But we're seeing um, festivals evolve quite nicely. The basics for me is you can't compare one with the other. You can't compare going to your local pub and uh, or, or craft beer venue or, or restaurant or you know bar whatever it might be you can't compare that with a, a well-run beer festival because like you said there's, there's just so, so much more it's it's all about the engagement it's all about um you know meeting like-minded souls and being able to sort of you know, engage um and look it, totally not a plug but um i work obviously with the the great australian beer festival guys the beer ambassador good beer ambassadors Australian Beer Ambassador, sorry, is the the business name. Um, We ran the first one, uh, Great Australian Beer Festival in Albury, uh, just on the weekend, amongst a predicted 10 out of 10 weather event uh, that didn't quite eventuate, but uh, it certainly did affect the festival. Um, 3,000 people still turned up, absolutely sodden. Contingency plans were made and, and all that sort of thing. It was an absolute buzz. Never been to a better festival in terms of the um, just 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 the vibe, the feel, that sort of thing. And yes, the there were there was a, a band, you know, live band stage, but there were there were lots of you know roving performers, and although they they kind of had to use a little bit of a Spiegel tent because you know with the with the weather, um, but just a a lot of stuff that you don't you can't create, um, you know outside of the the beer festival thing uh and i think that proves my initial point that um you can pretty much sniff straight away by 
the look, the feel, the price uh, of admission and the way it's run, whether or not they're in it because they want to make a dollar or they're in it because they want to share, you know, uh, their, I guess, their passion for, for sharing beer. And the other thing, too, is that they're uh, on the other side of the coin. From the brewer's point of view, there are probably two different models as well. Speaking to a lot of brewers over a lot of festivals, if you can get something that's revenue neutral, then that's a bonus because yours, as in, so it doesn't actually cost you anything, you know, to be there. If you can, if you can make enough back on the on the tokens that you can kind of cover the cost of of getting there and staffing it, you're fairly happy with that. Any profit is cream on top. It's an absolute bonus i think if you're um you know pumping out eight dollar schooners you're probably trying to make money from being at the festival and i don't know that you're necessarily there for the right reason because there's certainly a great opportunity to engage with the drinkers you know particularly if you if you're the brewer i think you have a a really great advantage being at, at beer festivals of being able to sort of you know because you, you you engage with the the home brewers you you can you know it, it's just nice for for somebody who's just never heard of your brand to to know that you're the bloke who or, or the woman who made it that's a, a great point, Prof. Um, and it's very true that, you know, if, if the brewer's there and you can interact with the brewer, that, that adds to the experience. Um, but then with so many beer festivals, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to attract the brewer and you're more likely to get a sales rep coming in. Oh, 100%. And look, the other thing on that too is that there, with so many more beer festivals, uh, you, you, you almost need to have new players coming through. I think sometimes, you know, regular festival goers don't necessarily want to go there and see the same, you know, I, I already know your stuff, you know, so so it, it's perhaps better sometimes to have a, a bit of a mix. And uh, you and I have spoken about this, I, I recall, you know, going back sort of, I, I guess it's probably five or six years now, talking about how good it was that there were these beer festivals popping up, but at what point... Um, because there was a bit of a, a me too kind of um, attitude that, you know, well, I'll, I'll do a festival as well. And and we discussed, you know, how many is, is too many because the festival clearly doesn't work without the brewers. So you've got to, you've, you, you've got to look after the brewers. But by the same token, you know, the, the brewers have got to make sure that there's, you know, at least some sort of advantage to being there in terms of the numbers that you're going to attract, um, the way that you run it and all that sort of thing, making sure everyone's happy. It, it can be a great marketing opportunity and certainly a lot more value than, you know, um, setting a card table up at the back of Uncle Dan's and, and, and doing tastings and, and, you know, hoping you catch people going into the into the fridge to grab their, you know, two slabs of VB for 80 bucks. And that's where it is a bit of a challenge because it's hard to put a beer festival on because just picture an empty football field and you've got to bring everything in to turn that football field into a effectively a pop-up bar for a day. And there's a lot of cost involved in that, a lot of people, a lot of wages, um, and you need to cover that cost. And at the same time, as you said, brewers want to be, you know, hopefully revenue neutral and, you know, they often have to pay for their stand and then share a profit of, uh, a share of every beer that they sell um, to, to the event organiser. Um, and that's pretty hard. And I, as we've talked in the past, Prof, I do wonder um, how you can have a beer festival that brewers turn a profit on that isn't pouring huge volumes of beer and, and maybe creating some of the problems that see beer festivals given a bad name. You know, if, if people are drinking that much at a beer festival that every brewer is making a profit, the maths for me don't really work out that there aren't going to be a whole lot of people with a, a very bad wobbly boot afterwards 
that are causing problems on the street that then gives uh, beer festivals a bad name. But, you know, there, there are some who are doing it very well. Um, but uh, as we will see, the more festivals that there are, the more competitive pressures there are. And, you know, we'll see some people pushing, you know, where that line is um, a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. And look, just the, the lesson is, I guess, you know, if you're going to criticise something, make sure that you are criticising what it is, not what other people might lead you to uh, to think that it might be. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. Good friend of the program, although I don't... Have we ever had Phil Cook on from New Zealand? Uh, I know yeah, we've, yeah, we've, we've no, done... He's been on a couple of times. He's been on our uh, Gabs episode before, um, and I'm oh, sure we've done... Oh, of course we did too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure he's been on once or twice. Yeah, so he uh, he highlighted a, an article where, uh, I guess, a non-beer journalist had uh, penned a piece in a New Zealand publication that uh, purported to say that... Um, the higher alcohol found in craft beers is the reason that Nelson, uh, the, te- the the region or the town of Nelson, uh, has had a spike in um, in drink driving. Yeah, interestingly, I'd uh, seen this article before I saw Phil's uh, hot take on it the next day. And it, essentially, the article was saying higher alcohol levels in craft beer are catching drivers out. And then Phil actually took the article apart saying, well, there wasn't actually any link um, the anecdotal or otherwise between the uptick in drink driving arrests and craft beer and so basically said that it would, the article was then counterproductive um, whereas I had a slightly different take on it from uh, Phil because I, I it, it's actually something that I've been wondering about for a while whether uh, you know for, for a long time we saw mid-strength beer being popular, not so much for its flavour, but because at one standard drink an hour, um, it was very easy to keep track of how much you could drink and stay drivable because your, your body can metabolise one standard drink an hour. So it, it kept the maths nice and easy. And I, I have wondered whether with higher alcohol that that craft beers tend to have, whether that makes it a little bit harder we are seeing. Um now, this article didn't actually provide any proof positive of that, but it did get people thinking about that, which I thought was quite good. I didn't think that it had the negative impact that Phil was suggesting. The one interesting thing that uh, Phil's article uh, or reply did bring out is that a beer that is 5% over 4% is, you'd think, well, it's not much more intoxicating than a 4% beer, but it, it, it actually is because... If, if you can metabolize one standard drink an hour and a beer is one and a quarter or one and a half standard drinks, if you have two drinks in an hour, that's a significant higher impact on your body because none of that alcohol is being uh, metabolized. So, um, yeah, look, interesting discussion. I don't think it was as negative as uh, Phil suggested, um, but I think it is something that we do have to pay very special uh, attention to when we're um, you know, driving to the pub. 
I think probably as a journalist, and I'd like to throw this to James because I think because um, I think he's not listening at the moment, so we can say this in front of him, Matt. Um, we're very lucky, I think, to have James on board at, at Australian Brews News because the feedback that I get, and you and I uh, often talk about this behind his back, um, just so he doesn't get a big head, of course, um, is that James is very good at, uh, I, I guess, tackling uh, emotive subjects or, or subjects that that uh, you know you can you can in your writing. Uh, kind of inject a, a bias or, 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 you know, show your colours. James is, is very, very skilled as a, as a journalist who is then, you know, transferring that into, into beer journalism um, in, in staying fairly neutral and saying, here are the facts, here's the sort of, you know, the, um, I guess the weight uh, that, that the story, you know, deserves or, or which element of the story, you know, you should be alerted to and then letting the, the reader make up their own mind. Whereas I think Phil was sort of saying, you know, that the headline was kind of like craft beer is bad. And then there was nothing necessarily, uh, A, saying that there was any reason to suggest that there was a, a, an increase in drink driving in Nelson to start with, nor did the did the writer, um, notice I use writer rather than journalist in that particular instance, um, neither does the writer sort of bring it back to other than craft beer can have higher alcohol um, offerings. So I think that was kind of kind of the point. Um, so James, you can flick your microphone back on now. We've stopped talking about you. Oh, I had to fall asleep actually, Prof. But you just jolted <laughs> me back to life with those um, compliments. Thank you. You shouldn't have. Um, but yeah, look, that, that story just reminded me a bit of that Ibis World one um, going back, you know, a few months ago when basically the the ABS um, showed that beer consumption had risen or overall alcohol consumption had risen in Australia by literally a bee's dick. Um, and then somehow put, you know, two and two together and got five and said that it was because people were drinking craft beer. And there was really nothing to um, suggest that that was the case at all. But at the same time, I don't think that, I mean, the article didn't come across as, you know, alcohol is bad, alcohol is a source of ills or anything along those lines. I don't think it was particularly well researched and it wasn't good um, academic writing in any way, shape or form. But I just sort of thought, yeah, actually, that, that is something that you need to consider. Um, as a salutary warning as opposed to a you know, tearing down of, of, of beer, the way that whenever they have street violence stories, you always see a glass of beer being photographed. Yeah, or empty VB cans in the gutter or that sort of thing rather than the, yeah, the, you know, the crack pipe at home or the bloody, you know, whatever. Anyway, it was a good read. And I, I say also, just by way of, um, of explanation, that I've done a couple of um, interviews with ABC Darwin and uh, they came to say, look, we've got this theory just in the office, and so we wanted to chat to you about it. But we reckon that um, al- alcohol, um, craft beer sales are rising because they come in smaller packages. So therefore, people are drinking, able to drink more of the same volume, but they have to buy more units. It, it just goes to show sometimes you can kind of have a bit of an idea of something and then turn that into, a, I guess, a news item and, uh, uh, and perhaps give people the wrong idea. But don't don't they come in smaller units to make because you know there was that twenty dollar price ceiling on on a six pack and a lot of craft beers were twenty four twenty five dollars so they put in a four pack. Those were the good old days, Matt. Those were the good old days. Yeah, <laughs> I've got a completely unverified theory, and this is based on a you know a, a study of one person being myself, and I think that Uber um, facilitates the rise of uh, craft beer bars and. Uh, brew pubs only because I never drive anymore because I begrudge catching a taxi because they were so expensive and you can jump in an Uber get there you know relatively cheaply so I go out more often and 
you know, probably have an extra beer at brew pubs uh, because I don't have to drive. Now, that's not a scientific uh, or an economic study. That's just my own uh, behavior being projected upon the rest of the country. But, you know, I, I still think that there's a reasonable chance that other people are experiencing the same thing. Yeah. There we go. Hey, listen, just quickly before we go, guys, let's throw uh, a little bit of uh, a snippet in. Um, the IBD conference is coming up in, I think it's March next year, isn't it, Matt, in New Zealand? It is. It is the 19th to the 23rd of March in beautiful Wellington. Well worth uh, heading across. So, yeah, so um, the, the IBD has traditionally been seen as something that's uh, very much associated with the larger brewers but that's because the IBD operated uh, at the same time that basically larger brewers operated they're making real efforts to uh, ensure that their training is relevant to all brewers um, and so they've really reaching out to the uh, craft beer industry um, with a, a program dedicated to craft as well as much broader you know, relevance to all brewers as well. Um, so yeah, I caught up with Chris O'Leary to have a very quick chat with him about why uh, people should be looking at booking their trip across the Dutch uh, in March next year. So we might just uh, play that, Prof. Chris O'Leary, thank you very much for joining me uh, on Radio Brews News. No worries, man. Good to catch up. Wellington was chosen uh, pretty much to encourage people to, uh, because Wellington really is a hotbed of food and beer and creativity. Um, so it's the perfect place to be hosting a, con- a convention, um, looking at uh, beer, and particularly one that's got a craft beer stream as well as you know a, a, just a stream for brewers of all shades. Yeah, exactly. So Wellington's really bolted. Wellington claims to be the craft beer capital. Um, to be fair, there's probably a couple of other capitals in New Zealand that claim that. But, you know, just like Melbourne, uh, Wellington is a is a fairly cosmopolitan place, some fantastic places to eat, um, great harbour, and, and there's some amazing brewers there now. The place is just uh, like a, a beer geek sandpit, mate. Maybe I'd take a step back and talk about what the IBD is and uh, what its aims are. The aim of the IBD purely is to educate. And, you know, I could go through the whole uh, constitution, but at the end of the day, it's there to serve those that want to learn more about brewing. Now, look, just to give you an idea, um, you don't have to be a member of the IBD to uh, partake in most of their um, online or um, based courses. So the classic one is the General Certificate in Brewing, or, or similar. They've got a new name for it now. I can't quite recall it. I'm sorry. When we take on a new a new seller hand or a new brewer, um, we generally put them through the IBD General Certificate to start with. So they've maybe been home brewing for a while, and they do this course online. Um, if they if they apply for a job, they go to the top of the pile, mate. No no problem. It's just a the quality of the education that you get through the IBD is just world class, and you can take that anywhere in the world, and it's recognised. And looking at that, there is a the certificate, uh, general certificate in brewing, uh, is being offered at the moment. And there's going to be examinations in May 2018. Um, yeah, and it, it has a mainstream and a craft beer um, preparation. When I did it, and my guys did it, there was only one stream, so. Um, I wasn't aware that they'd split it, but it's it's definitely, I knew there was a uh, packaging side, there was a mainstream side. Look, the world's your oyster. And then you've got the diploma, uh, which is the next step up. That's a real commitment in time. But once you've got that diploma, you're fairly well versed on everything you need to know about beer. And that, the key with this conference or convention is that we're wanting people to go along and learn as much as they can. Now, I attended a similar conference myself 
in America about seven or eight years ago. And the contacts that I made and the knowledge that I gained just by being there was a real investment. And I still look back at those notes now. Um, just, it's an incredible situation to be surrounded by three or four hundred you know, people that just like you at a convention, you can just share notes and swap, swap beers even. Fantastic. And obviously make uh, contacts, as you said. We've seen over the last uh, you know, decade, as we've seen the explosion of uh, craft breweries, I personally have noticed that when people first got in um, to, to brewing in, in, in the early days, you could put together a system, you know, and, and look at making beer and just pushing the, the flavour boundaries. Yeah. More recently, as we've seen a lot more competition for uh, beers um, and we've seen beers being uh, distributed, the focus on quality um, is really coming back. How important is education for craft brewers to be lifting their quality game? <laughs> Incredibly important. So as, as the market or the customer has become more knowledgeable, they're becoming a lot more discerning. And when they pick up a, an off note or the beer's not looking quite as crisp and clear or it's got a variation in the haze that they're used to, they're the first people to comment on social media. The brewer needs to know how to A, respond, and B, check through his process to find out what may have caused that, that off note. So back in the good old days when I first started brewing, um, you just didn't have that education out there. So what you used to do is you used to brew up big hoppy beers and used to cover a lot of um, flaws and faults. These days, you don't, you just can't get away with it. There are so many competitors out there that you need to be ahead of your game and you need to be able to um, respond if, if you get a problem, whether it be micro or whether it be uh, flavour. And this is where uh, the, the education that the IBD offers, it gives you those tools to, to really drill down to see what's going on. And, and believe you me, if, if something's going wrong, it's usually the tip of the iceberg. So look, looking at the uh, Craft Brewers Forum uh, as part of the IBD conference, um, we've got yeah. guys like James Perrin from Stoneman, Stone and Wood talking about the Village Brewery, beer as a force for good. So obviously looking at some of the business and cultural aspects of, of brewing. But then we're also uh, looking at, you know, Warren Pawsey is talking about dry hopping options for craft breweries, implementation of centrifuge into a craft brewery, sour beer brewing with uh, Kelly Ryan, uh, brewing great IPA uh, with Joe Woods. Um, it sounds like there's a pretty you know, broad program being put forward to provide something for everybody. Oh, for sure. So there's a, there's a fair bit of quality in there, um, obviously. But there's also, we're trying to give it a sex in that, um, in that craft brewers form, trying to give the guys some real meat that they can really um, get into and discuss and really compare notes. So obviously hops are, are big. Are big in the game and you know how we use those hops and how we use them in a way that um, you know there's not there's not gazillions of tons of US Citra or Simcoe available for example just to pick two so how do you use those hops uh, or the hops that you can get hold of to give you the maximum flavor and um, also meet uh, you know some of those other constraints around cost and all sorts of things so we're trying to give craft brewers some real knowledge and education that they might not otherwise get. You know, if you're sitting in there in your brewery and you're working your ass off, um, brewing the beer, selling the beer, you don't often get the chance to take a breather and actually work out, well, how can I do this better? And this, this is the forum to do that. You don't have to be a member of the IBD to get along to the conference. Uh, when do registrations close? We'll take them as, long, as close to the day that we can. 
but she's open at the moment. So if you just um, go onto onto the web and type in IBD 2018 Wellington, that'll virtually get your search engine straight to the site. What else is happening in Wellington at that time of year? Is there anything else that people should be uh, bearing in mind when they're planning their trip? Should they be tacking on a few days before or after the, the conference? Whenever I did conventions overseas, it was always fantastic to go and visit some brewers that you um, wouldn't normally get the opportunity to visit. Go and spend a day with them, then go to the conference, see them at the conference, and you know you just form those fantastic links and bring your partners as well. Wellington's a great spot. Beautiful. Well, Chris, uh, thank you very much for your time. We look forward to getting over there. Uh, hopefully, we'll have uh, some coverage over there at the same time and uh, so we can touch base with Wellington again. But uh, good luck with the conference and uh, thanks very much for your time on Radio Brews News today. Cheers, mate. We really look forward to hosting everyone. There we go. And that was uh, Chris O'Leary. Yeah, uh, very, very interesting. Prof. Nice work. Mate, we haven't been across to Wellington for a while. I wonder whether we can uh, justify going over in uh, March to, to check things out. Yeah, I wouldn't mind, actually, if, if it's at all possible. Um, and I say that because, again, uh, just going back to Albury, met uh, a handful of brewers who literally work out of little sheds, you know, on farms and that sort of thing, have been going, you know, between six months and, and four years. Uh, and a couple of them had, um, you know, got into it as, you know, home brewers and that sort of thing, but have done IBD uh, online courses just to get that, uh, you know, before they effectively opened the doors and, and went commercial. So there certainly is starting to get a little bit tr- bit of trickle-down effect. But uh, I think it's possibly something that, um, yeah, from b- both sides, you know, the IBD needs to um, get the message out and we're more than happy to, to sort of help sing the song for them. And then the smaller brewers need to realise that there's it's, it's not uh, a massive commitment. There are sort of uh, units that will uh, certainly help them out. And in an increasingly competitive environment, it's certainly an important factor. Exactly. Just before we go, did um, either of you listen to the Coca-Cola Amatil um, investor presentation in the last week? I can't say that I did. <laughs> it's, it's on my list of things. It's next to yeah, the um, thesaurus beside my bed that I'm, I'm hoping to, you know, read a chapter of each night and just never get around to it. Uh, it was that's the same thing. I think every year uh, CCA, like most big companies, flies a bunch of investors, um, you know, to somewhere in Australia or in this case it was Indonesia and gives them a briefing on everything they're doing. And as part of that, um, they introduced the Feral brand and that Feral acquisition um, to investors. And here's what Shane Richardson from CCA had to say about it. Acquiring that business also came with the owner, Brendan Yaris, and, uh, which is one of the top brewers in this country and it helps us with our, both our credibility and our capability, um, which will c- continue to drive across our, our wider um, brewing business. So there you go. Um, <laughs> I think Toyota Yaris is going to be Brendan's <laughs> which... Um, you know, John, John Stallwood's going to be very happy about that because Brendan has long called him small goods and he hates that. And so now, now Toyota Yaris is going to be um, his comeback. Nice one. Uh, oh, well, they, they, <laughs> obviously, if he can't get his name right, they're not taking uh, too much attention of changing the recipes. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's probably a very small detail that that um, old Shane had to to remember in in a very big presentation. Although interestingly enough, I did send you through that slide map that showed uh, the Feral Brands um, positioning on their strategy, and it was really funny because it's like this table with every brand included in a neat column, and then Feral sits outside the, the entire box. Um, it sort of was leading me to think it was, it sort of had a bit of a square peg, round hole kind of um, analogy to it. I turn on my computer. I go online. Welcome. Welcome. And my breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got, got mail. mail. 
Michael sent me a message through LinkedIn. I really enjoy listening to you and the team on the Bruise News podcast and the conversational pieces too. I love that you guys aren't afraid to voice your opinion, but also keep a balanced view. I'm currently looking to change direction in my career and after 15 years in banking and finance, particularly through the sales and operation, your podcast give me a ton of information and insight every week, which I really appreciate. Keep up the fantastic work and hopefully one day I'll get a chance to meet you over a beer. Also, and he then followed up with, I was just listening to a podcast from Friday and in regards to the news about Gage and the release of Albi for the new stadium, there was a government decision two weeks ago that only mid-strength will be available to the general public and the full strength to the 8,000 premium seated members. Uh, still a great step forward to have Gage win this contract, but a long way to get treatment for the punter that enjoys the beer. Um, it's because that harked back to the conversation we had about stadiums. and Yeah, and I do take that on board, Matt. I, I did re- I did realise afterwards that uh, I hadn't read right down to the um, bit about how the full strength was available. So I meant to do a, a retraction and, and pop it in the show notes and completely forgot. So well done, Michael, for uh, looking after that. And also got another uh, message through uh, Facebook, Tim Fuller. Hey guys, just wondering how the barley wheat crops are doing in the southern states of the country. Are you going to mention the next podcast? Also, just like myself, there is a strange phenomenon going on with homegrown hops where they are flowering extremely early. It's very uncommon. And if you read a lot of the Aussie Brewing Forums, you will find that this is happening across the whole country. Is the same thing happening with the commercial crops as well? Will the harvest come early next year? Uh, so, Prof, I, <laughs> I've got uh, Mr. Beeks um, digging out the crop reports. We'll meet him in the underground car park at midnight. Yeah. And we'll... <laughs> so we can we'll see uh, what corner happens. the frozen concentrated orange juice market. <laughs> you don't think it's perhaps, you know, we're all going to die. It's not, you know, global warming, is it? That's, that's making the, the hops flower early. Uh, I don't know, but I, I'm just wondering whether our younger listeners know who Clarence Beeks is and whether our cultural uh, references are going to be their cultural references, but we'll see. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll pop a picture in the, in the show notes. Everyone should go and see uh, Trading Places uh, or get it on, go down to your local video store and uh, get it on VHS. On VCM VHS, that's it. <laughs> Good luck playing that, kids. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Tim, uh, yes, I, I've put in inquiries to the relevant places. So we're asking our contacts at Hop uh, Products Australia and also Bintani to see if they have a crop report. Uh, for both the barley and also our good friends at Cryomalt, who make this show possible, to ask them if they have any uh, update on the barley wheat uh, crops. So uh, hopefully we'll uh, have an answer for you next week, Tim. Well, that'll do us for this milestone 150th episode of uh, Radio Brews News. James Atkinson, thank you very much to you in our slightly buzzy, noisy Sydney studios. Yeah, sorry about the noise, listeners. That's right. We'll blame the neighbours. I actually thought perhaps it might have been a drone. So perhaps uh, one of the other our rival podcasts is, uh, you know, trying to get the jump on our, our scoops. They might be getting a bit jealous that we keep getting phone calls uh, 10 minutes before uh, exciting uh, takeovers and things happen to to, uh, to get the heads up. Never, nice theory. Who, who I like it. Who knows? Well, I'll stick with it. Just in the uh, in the whole Clarence Beaks trading uh, trading places kind of uh, vein, uh, Matt Kirkegaard in our Brisbane studios with the barking dog. Thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you, Prof and fellas. Really looking forward to catching up for a beer uh, on Monday. Very much looking forward to it. We uh, look forward to seeing you all up there. We'll also be out and about at a few other venues in and around Sydney while we're up there for our Christmas drinks and recording a few podcasts. So if you see us on Facebook that we've checked in somewhere, feel free to pop down and, uh, and grab a beer with us. And we will see you all again for episode 151 next week. Mm-hmm. 
Radio Brews News and Beer is a Conversation are made possible by our very generous sponsors, Cryer Malt and Brewpack, who are not only supporting this conversation, they're supporting the good beer industry and we thank them for their support. We also thank our Radio Brews News paid subscribers who donate a small amount each month to help keep the conversation going as well. Thank you for your support. If you like what we do and you'd like to support the show yourself, you can find a link in the show notes. Uh, you can make a one-off donation or a regular small donation. You can also help us by helping others to find us by leaving a review on iTunes on your favourite podcasting app. Finally, you can join the conversation by sending some feedback, comments or suggestions to producer at brewsnews.com.au. Thanks very much for listening. Join us next week for another beer conversation. And we are, for the 150th time, out.